Heavenly Father, as we turn now to the Scriptures, we ask for your blessing. Holy men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So come, Holy Spirit, and shine a light upon this Word that we might hear it, understand it, and by your grace do it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. Now turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 9. There were to be half a dozen sermons on this section, uh, sermons now that you'll never hear, uh, for circumstances that are obvious. Uh, next week is Advent, so we're, we'll be in Advent mode uh, in December, and then Something happens on the 24th, which we won't talk about. Um, so I've, I've had to concertina this entire section. And uh, we'll, be <clears throat> we'll be looking at this from 35,000 feet. Verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. Well, as we've been uh, hearing over the last few months, uh, that didn't happen. Within weeks, possibly months, Paul was taken out of the prison that he was in and beheaded on the Ostian Way as a Roman citizen. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. All of a sudden we learn that Luke is here. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, do you remember in Acts 16, after the Jerusalem Council, when Paul and Barnabas thought it a good idea to return to the churches that they had planted in his first missionary journey to see how they were doing? And there was a hot, hot contention between Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. John Mark had left and gone home in the first missionary journey. He couldn't stand the heat in the kitchen, and he went home. And Paul did not want John Mark to accompany them, but Barnabas did. And Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took Silas. There was a hot contention between Paul and John Mark. But do you see the beauty of this passage? That they've reconciled? It wasn't easy working with Paul. 
Paul was always right about everything. Paul had an opinion about everything. But the beauty of the work of grace in a type A personality, that he says, and wants the world to know, and wants you and I to know, he is very useful to me for ministry. He had let Paul down. But there was reconciliation, and there was forgiveness, and maybe that speaks to someone in your life that you need to forgive. Well, let's pick it up in verse 12. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, which is where Timothy is. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Interesting, isn't it? that the apostle who has the gift of healing cannot heal this man, Trophimus, and has to leave him at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, there's a lesson here that ministry can be both wonderful and hard. I speak to ministers, of course, but I also speak to elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and those who look after children and those who do college ministry and women's ministry and all other kinds of ministry. That ministry can be wonderful and hard. But Jesus will stand by you. That's the message. That Jesus will stand by you. There's a lot of grief in these final words. I speak to starry-eyed interns, and you know who you are, and I love you greatly. I'm in awe of these young men who wish to give up their lives in some cases, lucrative lives, who could be doctors and lawyers and businessmen and who knows what, 
and they want to go and minister at great cost to them and their families. And then, no sooner are they in ministry and wallop, they're hit by a two-by-four. I was in ministry two months. I was in the Christian bookstore in the heart of Belfast, which was run by the church. And uh, a man came in, he was a grandfather, pulled me aside and he said, I want you to marry my daughter, who was a believer, to this young man who's not a believer. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And words came out of his mouth that shouldn't come out of the mouth of a man who professes to be a Christian. And he made a big fuss of it, came to church and made an even more fuss of it on the Sunday morning, and then we never saw him again. Ministry can be wonderful, but it can be hard. Now, let's look at Demas. Demas, first of all. Demas, in lo- having, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, some commentators, old and, and current, uh, interpret this as an act of apostasy, that he lost his faith, and it's possible. Though the context suggests that he had deserted him. The ministry was too hard. It was too difficult. His love for the things of God grew cold. It was unrewarding. And the world offered more. Much, much more. He was in love with this present world. I've known many Demases in my time, far too many. People who began but didn't finish. They began the race full of energy, full of vision and enterprise. And then all of a sudden, they disappear. They fall in love with this present evil world. They couldn't take the heat in the kitchen. They left off following ministry. They stopped going to church. Eventually, you can't tell them apart from unbelievers. They're no longer in a relationship with Jesus. Do you know how that starts? It starts when you think of ministry as a job, as a profession. That's my job. What do you do? I'm a minister. I was 28 years old. I had hair. (laughs) I was standing in the driveway of one of the elders, and his wife he wasn't there, but his wife was standing in the driveway, and she was from the north of Scotland. And uh, she had no sense of humor. And I was complaining, you know, as you do, about how hard things were, woe is me. 
And uh, she pulled me aside and she gave me a lecture up and down, left and right, that I wasn't in a job, I was in a calling. I can hear her say it. It's almost 50 years ago. I can see her and hear her say it, and I've, I've thought about it almost every week since then. It's a calling. Maybe it begins like this. You're a Sunday school teacher, but a root of bitterness has begun to grow. You know, the book of Hebrews talks about a root of bitterness in Hebrews chapter 12. And it's insidious, and it grows, and grows, and grows. And then you stop teaching. And then you stop going to church for a while. I'll just listen online. And then a year, two years later, it's a Demas. Let me speak to younger folk here for a second. There's a narrative that says that if you are going to be relevant as a Christian, if you're going to be a witness, you need, you need to understand the culture. And you need to be culturally relevant. What does that mean? Well, you're going to have to stop being offensive. You can't talk about the role of men and women in marriage. You can't talk about the role of male leadership in the eldership of the church. You can't talk about gender. You can't talk about sexuality. You can't talk about how people identify. You can't talk about pronouns. And all of a sudden, even the name of Jesus is going to be offensive because He talks about them all. And all of a sudden, in your attempt to become culturally relevant, you've become just like the world. And may it never be written of anyone here today. So-and-so, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That's why you need to be heavenly-minded. That's why your eyes must always be on Jesus. You know this word deserted? This Greek word deserted, it's the same word that is used in Matthew's gospel when Matthew is, first of all, quoting Jesus in Aramaic, and then he translates it into Greek. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the word, same word, forsaken. When the love of his heavenly Father had deserted him. When he could no longer say, Abba, Father, but all that he could say was, My God. As though the consciousness of his native sonship had been obliterated. That's the word Paul is using about Demas. This is no light thing. 
Demas, if he isn't already, is on the edge of apostasy. Well, if you thought that was bad, there's Alexander the coppersmith. He did me great harm. And he warns Timothy that he'll be going after him too. There's a hint. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And there's a hint here that in his first defense to the emperor Nero, that Alexander the coppersmith spoke against him, provided evidence against him, Now, he's mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.20, possibly, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There was an incident that involved some kind of church discipline where Hymenaeus and Alexander, if it's the same Alexander, and it probably is, were handed over to Satan. That's code language for they were excommunicated. Do you know what happens to people who are excommunicated? They get even more angry. They get bitter. They fixate on something or another to the point where he wishes to see the Apostle Paul killed, executed. A personal vendetta now. Was it because Paul was in the limelight and Alexander was a coppersmith? He used the hammer of his tongue to beat the head of the Apostle Paul. A root of bitterness grew up. This man was not governed now by love and peace, but by hatred and spite. There's no logic to these people. You can't reason with these people. And I think that's why Paul hands him over to God. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. There's a day of judgment. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus warned us, didn't he, of wolves in sheep's clothing. Alexander the coppersmith, may you never meet him. In all your days of pilgrimage, may you never meet Alexander the coppersmith. Well, let's, let's go somewhere else. Let's go to Carpus. And uh, he's, he talks about Carpus in verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Now, 
Troas is a good ways away from Ephesus, where Timothy is. So he would have to make a journey uh, to Troas, where Paul spent a week in, in Acts 20. In Acts 20. Uh, Paul sent, uh, spent a week uh, in Troas, and he left behind a cloak. Now, this is the first century, and uh, Paul probably only had one cloak. You got up this morning, stuck your nose out the door, closed the door again, and said, I need a cloak. And you went to your wardrobe, and you looked at five, ten, fifteen of them to decide which one would you wear today. Well, Paul only had one, and it's in Troas with this man called Carpus, and he's cold, and winter is coming. He tells Timothy to try and come before winter, partly because he needs his cloak. I've been in the Marmotine prison, or at least what, what, what is purported to be the Marmotine prison in Rome, and it's just rock. It's just bare rock, and it's wet, damp, harsh, and he needs some warmth. But he also wants the books and, above all, the parchments. Commentators vie with one another as to what books and parchments mean. Probably books are his notebooks. I have been emptying my um, l rather large library. And in a few weeks, these books will be gone. And I've discovered, or at least my intern has discovered, notebooks wedged between other books. Some of these notebooks go back to the 1980s, when I would sit in a car and listen to a tape, and I would take notes. And I have lots of them. I probably have 20, 25 notebooks, and they are very valuable to me. They contain some of, some of my most precious thoughts, and they aren't many. Paul needs his notes, but he wants the parchments. And the parchments are the scrolls of the Old Testament. Now, only rich people had scrolls. Scrolls, of course, would be in the synagogue. People didn't carry scrolls around with them unless they were rich. Paul has acquired, we don't know how many. Perhaps he didn't have all of the Old Testament. He would have needed to go to a synagogue in order to do that. Paul had memorized a great deal of the Old Testament. But he's weeks away from being killed. What would you be doing weeks away before your head was about to be cut off? Paul wants to study. He wants to write. He wants to understand God and His ways more. He wants to help the churches more. That's the heart of the Apostle Paul. We only have one letter from William Tyndale. I picked this up in the ESV uh, study Bible, history study Bible. It's a study Bible that has little notes from history. 
And on this verse, it quoted the only surviving letter of William Tyndall. Now, William Tyndall was burnt to death for translating the Bible into English. At this point, he was in a prison near Brussels. I wish also to have a candle in the evening, for it is wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the procurer that he would kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary that I may spend my time with study. I think that's what Ralph Davis would be writing. This man knew for sure he was heading for certain death. And he wants his Hebrew Bible. What do you want for Christmas this year? You're going to be asked this question. It gets harder and harder the older you get because you don't want anything. Because you've got everything that you want. There's always a book. There's always a book. Ralph Davis's very latest commentary on a section of the Psalms, this is, I think, number four in the series, arrived at my door with his inscription yesterday. Perfect. Perfect gift. Ralph, you owe me $20 if you're listening. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He'll stand by you if you walk with him, if you fellowship with him day by day. He will stand by you and he will strengthen you. You may not be facing death like the Apostle Paul, but you may be. Cancer has struck in all of its viciousness. And despite the improvements in medicine, it often wins. But the Lord will stand by you and strengthen you and bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's the beauty of what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? That we have that sure and certain hope, come what may, we're going home to glory. We're going home to be with Jesus. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul, friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. And He'll be with you. Father, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word and for this last epistle of Paul. We pray that you would hide now these truths in our 
hearts that we might not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen.